Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, on this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast, I am joined by Anthony Williams, a dual resident of Washington State and our neighbor to the north, Canada. Man, this guy is fascinating. I met him, or I guess kind of met him, a couple of years ago on a Zoom call that was uh, kind of organized for and about black hunters and it was it was just kind of a weird range of people there was folks that were kind of working in the industry there was hobbyists there uh were some folks that you know in the last couple of years have really come on the scene really established themselves in the outdoor industry and this dude was was someone i took note of he is a, a falconer he's a dog man he he's into these really kind of specialized German breeds of hunting dogs. You know, really kind of fascinating that he's maintaining a living space both in Canada and in Washington. He's originally from New York City and just has kind of led a fascinating life, continues to lead a fascinating life. And we both ended up at this uh, Droth Fest a couple weeks ago two or three weeks ago, I guess now. And he was given a presentation on some of his areas of expertise. And he, he gave that presentation right before I got there. I was driving in from a different part of the state. And one of the first things I heard when I got there were from uh, some of the organizers. And they were talking about how impactful Anthony's presentation was and how it had actually brought you know, people to tears. So, you know, I was sold. I was like, I got to do a podcast with this guy. We chatted just for a little bit that first day. And then right before I left, uh, I was only there for like a day and a half. And right before I left, we uh, met up in my hotel room and we recorded this podcast. And man, this guy's fantastic to talk to. Uh, I dig the cadence of his voice. I dig how confident he is and just comfortable in himself. And man, I think it's a, not just like a unique perspective, but man, you know, I, lo I love talking about how some of these conversations are like demonstrable of the people that I'm, I'm interviewing. And I think this is that, and it's demonstrable also of just what a life can be, you know, if you live it without self-imposed or you know, societally imposed boundaries. So, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy getting to know this gentleman again. This is a conversation with Anthony Williams. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. 
This week, I'm still in Michigan. I'm uh, at a different place. I'm up here at kind of a resort, Branson-like resort called uh, Shanty Creek up here in northern Michigan. I've been at uh, this Drot Fest, these DD versatile hunting dogs. I just finished up doing a wax plucking demo and kind of like cooking instruction, a little seminar. It's been a good time. And I'm stoked because... I ended up being here, and there was another presenter, one Anthony Williams, who, like two years ago, we ended up on a, a Zoom call. It was it was like a Zoom call for like black hunters, just kind of introducing ourselves and uh, talking amongst ourselves. Put together by one Crystal Egley, and uh, who Crystal came down to the first uh, revival there at Black Duck Revival uh, some years ago. But, uh, yeah, Anthony is a a dog man. He's a falconer. Uh, He's an entrepreneur. And, dude, Anthony, I'm so so glad to finally get to meet you in person, and thanks for being on the podcast, bud. Hey, man, thank you so much for having me, brother. I truly appreciate it. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed your demo today. Oh, thanks, dude. I just want you to know how much my wife and I stood there and – Really enjoyed your demo. The your, your cooking was absolutely off the meter. It was off the charts. Um, but just learning your techniques and all the stuff you do. Uh, what I liked most about what you were doing, you taught people how to handle the whole animal, and that's something that a lot of hunters. I've been places where you would find a whole bunch of carcasses after a duck hunt or whatever, and that really caught my took my heart when you said. Your main purpose is to use the whole animal, even down to the carcass where you make your broth yeah, or you make sure. your stock. I, you know, that's just absolutely amazing. Bro. So, brother, I want to say thank you so much for putting that on. I'm well-educated now. I'll never t- treat my ducks the same, especially after you cooked them. And my wife looked at me and said, why can't you cook like that? Yeah, that's good, man. <laughs> this stuff's good, you know, and it's like uh, – I think we get we get messed up nowadays, and we think that we're having to do some sort of hot cuisine, and it has to be fancy and intimidating. And you know, that's like that's how everybody's grandma used to cook. That's you right. Know? Uh, but yeah, man, I'm I'm super interested in what you're doing, man. Like you know, I'm down there in Arkansas, uh, and I you know I've I've actually been I just wrote an article for a magazine about. Uh, uh, some black dogmen that are right there by the lodge. And these guys are like very kind of traditional Southern dogmen. Mm-hmm. They're running beagles for mm-hmm. rabbits. Right. Uh, and you know, uh, African-Americans have a, have a long standing history of houndsmanship and being dogmen there in the Southeast. But, uh, you, like we were just talking about, you're originally from Queens, New York. Now you kind of maintain a dual residency in Canada and, uh, up in like, uh, is it Tacoma or Seattle? Auburn, Washington. Yeah, okay. it's not far. Uh, and man, you're you're running these like tackle dogs, which we're going to get into. You're uh, doing falconry and stuff. I mean, you're, I mean, like just straight up, man. Like you're in places people don't think about black folks being at, and you're doing stuff people don't think about black folks doing. Uh, and I'm fascinated with it, man. I'd I'd love to hear how you ended up. I mean, we were just talking for a while about, you know, you you have familial roots down there. I mean, all black people in America have familial roots down in the South, but you're talking about down in Alabama. But I mean, so I mean, how do you get from Queens to all the way over there on the West Coast and then back and forth to Canada? Well, um, 
How about we start in the, in the beginning? You know, um, growing up in Queens, New York, I, you know, I truly believe God gives people writes their destiny before they're even born, you know, and, and my destiny was a weird one, you know, meaning I love dogs. I love wildlife. I was fascinated with hunting. There's no hunting in Queens, mm-hmm. at least, at least not legally, but <laughs> there is game. But, uh, I don't know why my parents didn't hunt, my uh, mother didn't hunt, dad didn't hunt, uncles, aunts, nobody really hunted, but that was a passion of mine, mine. and um, I was always decent at sports, not great, not good, because it wasn't my passion. My passion was always, you know, going to the New York Library, reading Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, uh, some of the hunting magazines that was around in the time. Uh, Buckmasters and all this, and even though I'd never really seen a deer or never hunted a rabbit or a squirrel or whatever, I already I always really wanted to uh, be able to uh, to do that. So uh, that was my outlet. You know, my outlet was always going places where where I could see those things, and there are there in Queens. Maybe not today because of so much building and putting up buildings, but. We would we would go and there was a place on the Belt Parkway in Brooklyn that I found that had pheasants, wild pheasants. Really, uh, there was uh, places like that by the airport that had rabbits, lots of rabbits. They even had a place on the airport that had blacktail jacks. What's what's a blacktail jack? It's a jackrabbit, but it's it's a, it's not big as your whitetail jack. It's about eight eight to ten pounds. Okay, and they didn't have a lot of them, but they had them. Um, Right there in Kennedy Airport, you know. Uh, so I, I always would go around and, and find these places and set little box traps and catch raccoons and foxes because the city was loaded with them. Um, so that was pretty much my childhood. And I always dreamed of, uh, you know, one day owning a, a, a versatile dog, a bird, a bird dog of some kind or hound of some kind and being able to do that. But as a kid growing up in the city, you know, I had nobody to talk to about it because nobody understood it. Mm-hmm. Nobody lived it. Nobody. Oh, yeah. My cousin's down in the deep south. They they hunt. They hunt raccoons and they hunt this and they hunt that. And I was drawn to that. You know, I was like, oh, you know, can I meet them? Can I talk to them? And that never came to fruition. But luckily, my parents would take us to the south during the summer months to visit my grandparents. And that's when I got to live out some of the things that I would read about, you know, uh, you know, seeing deer, seeing rabbits and, you know, wild pigs and, and all those things. And I was able to, my grandfather had most of that stuff on his farm. So I was able to look at that. So when I would go down there, that's what I would truly look forward to. And as a kid in the summer to be able to do that. Plus he had those old farm dogs you know those old farm bulldogs that he would call out from underneath the house when one of the pigs get out so then i was able to see those dogs work seeing an actual farm dog did your uh did your parents grow up down south and then move up north yes my mother grew up in dothan alabama my father grew up outside of augusta georgia okay and then they moved up you know like most of them uh, a lot of uh, people of that era, you know, they had to move to the big city if they wanted to make a living. Yeah, part of that great migration. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, my dad was a New York City police officer, police sergeant actually for many years, and then my mom she worked she worked for the state, 
you know, she was a, an executive director of a health care facility for mentally disabled children uh, for the state. So, uh, you know, we, we were able to, you know, we, we did okay. You know, even though we lived in the hood, we lived in South Jamaica, Queens, um, we had a good, you know, I had a decent life, you know, but I always longed to go to wild places, you know, uh, uh, read about uh, catching salmon on the Puget Sound, you know, or, you know, hunting bear in British Columbia, uh, going to Montana, hunting sharp, sharp-tailed grouse and, and pheasants and Hungarian partridge. And I, I, I've done all of those things. I've, you know, as an adult, I've been able to get out and go to these places. The sad part of it is being a, a person of color is most of the times is by myself or mm-hmm. with my wife. My wife's my right hand. She's always there with me. Um, coming to events like this where, you know, they invite you to, to come out and speak about the dogs that I've been passionate about since I was a child. You know, and you talk about houndmanship. One of the dogs that I, I do own today, and we call them Teckles, but they're actually wire-haired dachshunds, um, not just show variety, but these are, these are dogs of working stock that they still, in Europe, are quite common. When you, when you see a hunter in Germany, in Poland, in Austria, they are sitting inside of a, a high house hunting, and they got a, a wire-haired dachshund or a Teckle sitting in between their legs. Now they don't they they've got rules over there that like at a lot of places that you've got to have Absolutely. like a blood trailing dog if you're going to hunt, right? You got to have a trained dog to hunt. Period. Now that dog has to do it all. That's the reason for the versatile hunting dog. That's the whole reason why a versatile hunting dog was created. Ex- explain what a versatile hunting dog is for folks. Here in the US, we've slapped labels on our dogs. Labrador retriever, flushing spaniel. Uh Pointer, uh, uh, coon hound, treeing hound, mountain feist, squirrel dog. We, 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 we always quick to put a name on a dog. The, the Europeans or the Germans or whatever are not really keyed on that. They feel as their methodology is a dog needs to do everything. And that's what a versatile dog does. And they do it all well. I'm not saying they do it great, but they do it all well. So uh, give an example of my dog. A typical hunt for me looks like this. I'll wake up in the morning. I'll go out for a first, first light duck shoot. We'll go knock down a couple of ducks in the morning. Come back, have breakfast at the car. Maybe go in the car and take a nap. Get up around 10 or 11 o'clock. We hit the grouse woods. We're hunting grouse, pointing grouse. We may jump a rabbit, we may jump a hare, we may jump a snowshoe hare. Then we, we take all those animals, dispatch them, uh, go back to the car, rest up again, go out back for an evening hunt, maybe go for some more grouse, maybe an upland bird pheasant that the dog is pointing, maybe run into a good hardwood thicket and run up with some squirrels so our dogs start treeing squirrels. And... Then in the evening, after all that said and done, we get up and go for a night shoot on ducks. Or we may go into a field and hunt geese, go into a layout blind. 
These dogs that I use, my dog of choice is a Deutsch Drahtar, which means a wire hair pointer. In the States, we've lamed, a lot of the Germans get upset with us because we've added the name pointer behind the breed. There's like, they don't just point. Pointing is, is only one of the things that they do. They blood track deer. They run rabbits. They point grouse. They'll retrieve ducks. They'll, re- they'll retrieve cranes. They'll fight a coon, take a raccoon out if you want to hunt raccoon. They'll, they'll trail a rabbit, open mouth, you know, meaning bay. Not, they don't quite bay. They do something called what we call spurl out, where they more like yip as they chasing the rabbit through the, through the forest. They'll, you know, like I said, they'll hunt woodcock. They'll hunt snipe. Uh, hunt, I saw a guy recently, I don't know where he was because I've never snow goose hunted before, but there he is, his dog's wearing a white vest. He's laying in the middle of a field in a, in a, in a layout blind hold, hunting snow geese. They're a retriever. They'll hit the water as hard as any Labrador or any Chesapeake Bay retriever dog. They'll hit that water. They'll break ice. They'll go out there retrieve to hand because that's part of our testing that the dog delivers to hand. And uh, to cut, cap it all off, I'm going to go back to blood tracking, meaning you're up in a tree stand, you, you zip one through a nice buck, maybe not a not so good of shot, but you can't find them. Your blood trail dries up, maybe starts dropping one, one, one drop of blood every 20 feet and trying to find, you know, blood in a, in a thing of fall leaves is difficult. I bring my drathar and I, I go to your original spot of where you shot it, the first, first, first blood, I bring her up, I have her on a blood tracking lead, and I tell her to hunt dead. And she'll blood track that animal all the way till we find him or jump him. Even if he crosses a river. Because when he crosses a river, he leaves an oil slick or a blood slick across that river. That dog will go across that river, pick it up on the other side, and keep going till we find that animal. Now, if that animal's still alive, I normally tell the, the hunter that I'm tracking for, dude, this is on you. You, you know, I can't, I can't run this dog after a while, while game. If you want to wait till tomorrow morning, maybe he'll stiffen up during the night, but we will find him. So they, they're, they're expert blood trackers. So that's the whole meaning of a versatile dog. If you look at most versatile dog kennels, they'll have a picture of a deer, a wild pig, and that's another thing they do is driven hunts in Germany. They'll fight a wild boar. Uh, if you look at the, the dogs, you'll see a, a vision of a deer, uh, a bird, a duck, a waterfowl, uh, grouse, and then you'll see, uh, you know, a rabbit. That, in, that, that insignia, I saw a guy downstairs that was selling hats like that. My wife mm-hmm. bought one. That insignia, that that. That basically wraps up what a versatile dog is. They are, in Germany, if you go back to the history of the dog, they were originally called the butcher's dog or the meat dog. That's, in Germany, they're allowed to sell wild game. There's people out there who did that for a living. That's all they did, Jonathan, is go out and hunt wild game to provide to the butchers, to the meat dealers. And they, they designed this dog exclusively to be a meat provider. So matter, no matter what it was that was out in that field, that dog either brought it around to the gun or the dog dispatched it himself. 
So versatile dog, the best way to describe it is they do it all. And the, the reason why I still stick with the German bred dogs, the VDD, the Voindeutsch Stratar Club, is because of the very strict testing and breeding requirements just to be just to be able to breed your dog. Yeah, I've I've been picking up on that. I mean, it's it's no joke. You you have to do, you know, you have to have, pass the puppy test. Mandatory. You have to pass the puppy test. Uh, you have to pass the tracking part of the puppy test, meaning your dog has to track a rabbit. You have to have a tracking score. Your dog has to do a search for duck, a blind search for duck, meaning that duck is on the other side of that pond, and you have to bring your dog blindly to the edge of the water with your three or four judges standing all around you, line your dog up and send your dog. Your dog has to swim at least 40 to 50 meters across that thing Following that duck slick, pick up that duck on the other side, track him to wherever he ran to, pick him up in his mouth, come back down the bank, swim back across, walk up the bank, and sit for the delivery to your hand. Or if that duck goes into cattails, that dog has to tear apart that cattails until they find that duck. They have to do search for duck. They have to do steadiness to fire, meaning they steadiness to gunfire, meaning that they can't be gun shy. Um, they have to do. They have to do a three hundred meter rabbit drag, where the judges actually drag a drag a rabbit carcass with two to three turns in it for three hundred meters. Drop the animal there. You start on the other end. You release your dog. You release your dog after you tell him to hunt dead. That dog has to use their nose and follow every turn that that judge makes until they pick up the game. Pick it up, turn around, and do a straight path back to you, sit and deliver. They have to do a 200-meter waterfowl track. So that represents a wounded duck that you may shoot. They may have a broken wing, unfortunately, and they get out there and they go walk up into the woods or whatever. Your dog has to do a 200-meter with two to three turns and pick up that duck carcass and bring it back. Then you got the field portion of the test where the dog has to go out in the field and point a bird. And the, when they point that bird, they have to stay on point enough for you to get into gun range, within gun range, which is 20 to 30 yards. Then if the game flushes, that's okay. But the judges want you to be able to see that. Once you complete all that, those tests, then you have what is known, you, besides getting that you have to send the dog in, to get blood work, to make sure they're, they're clear of any blood disorders. You have to make sure that the dog uh, hips are rated, their eyes are rated, their elbows are rated. You want to make sure all those things, you take all that information, including their hip x-rays, and you send it to Germany. Then the German veterinarians in Germany, uh, the masters of the, of the breed, you know, the, the breed wardens and stuff in Germany, looks over all your x-rays, and they give your dog a rating. Then they send your x-rays back. Like in my case, they said, Anthony, your female's hips are A, A-rated. She's uh, shoulder, no shoulder issues. That's another thing that registers shoulders and elbows. There's no shoulders. There's no elbow issues. So once they do that, and you got that clearance, then you have to go to what is known as a breed show, which is kind of like a show show, like a typical dog show, but it's not about 
whose dog is beautiful. You know, they like a good looking dog. Yes. But they're looking at more than that. They're looking at form. They're looking at teeth. They're looking to see which the gate to make sure your dog gate is, is, is built to hunt all day. They open the dog's mouth to make sure the dog is not undershot, overshot, or or butt bite, that they have the perfect scissor bite. They look in the dog's eye to make sure that the dog doesn't have any trophic, trophic like hair growing, ingrown hairs in their eyes. That'll make them go blind later on. They also look and, and uh, they look at their hair. That's a big point. They judge them in two categories, form, meaning their body structure, and hair. And they want to make sure that that hair is to the original standard of wire coarseness with a undercoat with a nice undercoat because that undercoat protects the dog in arkansas when you guys are hunting in the timber in the winter that undercoat prevents the dog from getting cold those guard hairs are water resistant so that allows the dog to swim in cold water allows them to float be more buoyant so they have to have a hair rating too so you once you get your hair rating and but most of all the end result is your dog is certified for breeding or your dog is not certified for breeding. So if your dog is certified for breeding, that means your dog has done everything like this, this young bitch that I have. Her name is Jade, uh, also known as Athena Von Nordlich. She just, uh, she was the first dog in her litter to pass all of her, all of her, her, her functioning tests as well as uh, to pass her breed show certification. So now she is certified to be able to be bred. But even with that, she's certified. If I choose a male, I would have to contact a man or a woman that's called the breed warden. And I would say, Jonathan has, you know, ice, vom, whatever. As a male, I really like this male. He has a beautiful coat, but he compliments my female. My, key, my female shortcomings is her coat could be a little bit soft. So I want to tighten it up by breeding it to, to, to Jonathan's dog. And the breed warden will look at your pedigree and look at my pedigree and say, give the strong recommendation, yes, this is a good pairing. Or he may say, well, Anthony, your dog has bad teeth in their history. So, and Jonathan's dog has bad teeth in their history. This is not a good combination because you could potentially throw puppies that won't move the breed forward. Mm. So they've been doing this, Jonathan. I know I'm t- it seems like I'm talking a lot, but I'm no, trying- no, please do. Uh, they've been doing this for hundreds of years, which made the draft dog what it is today. The American ha- the Americans have taken the dog and they've made them German wire hair pointers. They're registered, but with the CKC or another wonderful club is NAVDA. Both, you know. Uh, both of those clubs are really good. NAVDA is exceptional. I, I cut my teeth on NAVDA. The only thing with NAVDA is they don't have the strict breed regulations, breeding regulations um, that they have in the VDD. Your dog has to pass uh, certain tests in order just to get certified for breeding or else your dog's not eligible for breeding, period. And so with what I found, Jonathan... As, as you look at all of these dogs that you saw here today, mm-hmm. uh, you look at them. They all, and one guy said, man, this guy was just walking by. And he says, dang, all these dogs look alike. That's from breeding the best to the best to the best 
to the best, to the best coats, to the best beard. They have to have furnishings in their beard, to the best eyes, the best hips, to get the caliber of dogs that we have today. Because we don't just go, hey, you got a good dog, and I got a good dog. What we think is good dogs, and let's put them together, not knowing any of the genetic testing that goes on. With my female, I could tell you that she has no genetic blood disorders. None. She's not hemophilia. She doesn't have lung collapsing issues. Uh, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't have von Wildebrand's disease. She doesn't have any of those things. I could tell you the genetic DNA because I, when they're puppies or whatever, we scrape their gums. Or some guys now, even when they dock their tails, they they take a little bit of the blood from the tails and put it on a blood card and send it in. And the companies, they got genetic companies. DNA companies that do a, a, a full genetic workup on your dog when they're just babies. Mm -hmm. So that lets the breeders know if they have any potential issues in that, in that litter before the litter is even a week old. So with that, Jonathan, that's the reason why the Deutsch Trata. Now, also, they have the short hair, what we call the American short hair. The Germans have their version of it, which is the Deutsch Kuzar, Kuzar. They go through the same thing that we do. They have the German long hair pointer. They go through, which is kind of equal to our, English, to our setters, not English setters. These are working setters. Okay. Another thing that, that, that we have to test our dogs for is, is hardness, which is, you know, we don't test them for it. We don't, you know, it's just basically your dog has to be able to take on something, a formidable foe. Meaning that, you know, uh, if it's if 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 it's if you shoot a coon and wound it, or whatever, and that coon runs off, it happens. That dog has to be able to go in there, dispatch that animal, and bring him back. You know, bring it so that that's conservation. Or let's say a duck. I mean, a goose. I've shot plenty of Canada goose, especially when they first introduced steel shot. Mm -hmm. guys were doing a lot of wounding of geese because they hadn't came up with the concoctions of steel shot that they have today. Sure. So you would, I remember shooting a, a goose out uh, right outside of Lake Ontario and it was a big gander. And my, my, you know, my buddy's dog went out after it. It was a, it was a, it was a retriever and that big gander raised up and hissed at him and bit him. That dog turned around, swam back to shore. It was like, uh -uh, I'm not going out there to tangle him. I sent my my dog at the time, Apache. He was a, a dot, and I sent him, and he went out there. And he, sure enough, the goose hissed up, and when he did it, he took hold of it, took hold of the geese, broke him down out in the water, brought him back. Yeah, you know that's actually a point that's I'd I'd like to speak to for a second because it uh. Yeah, that that feels kind of weird, or just like to our, I think to like modern hunting, that seems very strange to that you'd have a dog that would like you're saying that would be dispatching or finishing these animals off, but like exactly in the scenario scenario you're talking about, it it actually sounds incredibly ethical because you're you're not just sending leaving a wounded animal out there to suffer and die. You're trying to dispatch it quickly and then trying to retrieve it. And especially if we're talking about utilizing as much of that animal as possible uh, as a food source, then yeah, that's what you, that's what you want to get. Like it, I cannot stand losing a bird. 
it it uh, it it bothers the heck out of me. And you know, like I've stopped plenty of hunts. So I was like, do we got to try and find this uh-huh. this duck or this goose? Uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, and when you can't, it's uh, it, I mean, it's messed up because I mean, you know, that thing's gonna die. And you know, I mean, it's like uh. You know, I've heard it a million times before, like, buzzards got to eat same as worms. But, like, I'm not trying to feed coyotes. I'm trying to feed me and my family, right? That's right. Uh, so, yeah, that that actually is a – that kind of helps realign uh, that standard in my mind quite a bit, the, the way you're talking about that. Well, you know, one of the things – I'll give you a scenario. One, my first my first dropped-off female, uh, Ebony, she went out – we went out opening day uh, – the day after opening day duck – Luther Marsh, Ontario. I put on my waders. I was right by the car. I looked and saw the game warden. He came over, checked my license. And, you know, he's been an African-American hunter in, in Ontario. You know, I got the look. And, sure. and then I out hops this funny-looking dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, you got a dog. And I bring her over to heel, and we walk out into the marsh. But he still can see us. Mm-hmm. She was just a pup, maybe 11, 12 months old, and she kept slinking away. And I kept calling her back, get over here, get over here. But Jonathan, she would slink away again. So I thought, I said, go ahead, just get your yayas out, you little idiot, go ahead. And she slunk, slunk away, Jonathan, and all of a sudden, I hear, wah, 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 wah. and I look, there's a crippled duck running across the water. She picks it up, crump, crunch, brings it back to me. I'm like, oh, wow, that's got a duck. Yeah. She hands me the duck. She turns around, goes right back into the cattails again. Comes back with another, a, a wounded hen. Comes back, goes right back into the other set of cottontails. Comes back out. Lo and behold, I got five ducks that day, and I didn't fire one shot. Really? And I, when I walked back up, because no ducks were flying, I got there late. I, you know, I was working real heavy. I walked back up with five ducks, and the game warden came over to me, and he said, you didn't fire one. I didn't hear you fire, so I didn't fire one shot. These were all cripples. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, and he said, I know the guys who were hunting here uh, on opening day, which was the day before. Yeah. And he says, I see them here quite often. He said, they're going to have a good have to explain some really good talking to me uh, next time I see them, or they're all going to get fines. He said, they did nothing to find these games, this game, and that taught me that the best conservation tool that a hunter can own is a well-trained dog. I don't care what kind of dog it is, but the best conservation tool that they can own is a well-trained dog. And I've had that happen numerous times since then with me being involved with these dogs, with, with short hairs, with poodle pointers, with spinonis, with wire hair vishlas. Well-trained dogs that's able to get out there and pick up those wounded animals that we get. And, I, you know, I know probably, you know, the, some of the antis are going to get upset and say wounded, but it happens. That's what it happens when hunting. But the whole purpose is my stomach turns like yours when I see and I can't find a duck. But now when I know that I have the tool with the nose and the capability of finding that wounded game, that eases my soul a little bit because I know when I send my dog, she's going to take, now I'm not saying that she does 100% and she catches, finds 100% of the wounded animals. I'm not saying she does, but I can tell you this, she, she'll tear apart a cattail slough, a timber, 
uh, she'll tear apart anything on the other side to find, to attempt to find whatever it is that I send her for. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes, you know, she's got to get gritty. You know, if, if, you know, if I'm out there and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I hit a coyote or something like that or, wound, you know, not wounded coyote and the coyote got friends out there. Sometimes she's got to jump in the middle of it and make things happen until I get there. You know, I, I like a dog and that's what the Drata, the Kutsar and a few other, the other European breeds, the, the new, not really the new dog in North America, but it's a very common dog in North America is the German Hunt Terrier, also known as the Yacht Terrier. Everybody and their mother wants this dog right now. It's smaller and it has the grit of any large breed German dog you can find. Um, they'll get out there and they'll dispatch the heavy stuff. And then to top it off, they, they can find wounded game when you shoot your deer. Now, nothing is more. I shot a deer in Ontario about three years ago. I hit him high in the shoulder. This deer was bleeding a storm. And I tra we tracked him quite a few hundred yards. And it made me sick to my stomach that I never found that deer. I still... Every time I've shot a deer afterwards, I've taken, I've harvested a deer afterwards. Before I pull that trigger, I make sure that my shot is ethical, even though I got the tool now. Mm -hmm. Between my tackles and my, my, my drawthaw, I can find it. If it's, in the, if it's in the woods, I'll find it. Within 20 miles, I'll find it. But every time I pull the trigger now, I make sure that my equipment works. I have the best equipment that I can afford. It may not be the Ravens or any, uh, some of the other bigger crossbows that are one are magnificent, just that they're not in my price point. So I try to buy the best equipment I can, but also that I learn to use that equipment to the best of its ability. And I know when I pull that trigger or I release that arrow that I can make an ethical shot. Even though I have a dog, that doesn't that doesn't lend me to, oh, well, I can make a crappy shot and I'll still find it. I try to still make the best shot that I possibly can by, you, by making sure my equipment is tuned up and ready to go. Are you, are you doing most of your hunting in the U.S. or in Canada? Both. So you bounce back and forth across the border? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I come home, I, I, you know, uh, I, I do a lot of, when I go home to Canada, because Canada is what I consider my home in Ontario. Um, that's where I do a lot of my big game hunting, my deer, but more and more in Washington state, um, you know, Washington has everything. It's hard to get, 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 uh, uh, tickets or, you know, to be able to get draw, draw tags in, for certain animals. But if you're a diehard hunter in Washington, you can hunt anything from moose, of course, elk, of course, two species of deer, black, well, three species of deer. You got black-tailed deer, you got white-tailed deer, and you got mule deer. You know, all roaming the same ranges. Uh, you got some of the best upland bird hunting around. You got all, you got three species of turkeys. You got the Miriams, you got the Rios, and you got Easterns. All, all in, this, in Washington State. You got grouse, you got duskies, you got blues, you got uh, ruffs. You got snipe, you got uh, snowshoe hare. You, they have jackrabbits, black-tailed jackrabbits, but you can't hunt them in Washington. 
because um, they're threatened species. Uh, you got your predator hunting from bobcats to coyotes to mountain lions. If you get a, like every time I buy my license, I buy a combo, which is deer, elk, and bear and coyote. It's called a combination license. Uh, 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 combination license. So when I'm out there predator hunting coyotes in the wintertime, if I call in a big tom, I could tap him. If I call in a bobcat, I can harvest him. Have so, you got? Have you gotten a mountain lion before? I haven't gotten one, but I've seen him. You ever and, eaten one? You know, I have not. A guy told me, a guy, a friend of mine who has eaten him, tell me it, it's 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 the best pork you've ever had. It man, it's. Uh, I had a buddy in Utah this winter give me some, and man, like a couple weeks ago was my kid's birthday party, and I made. Uh, I smoked. A uh, mountain lion roast. Mm. I made black bear meatballs and I did turkey carnitas. And man, yeah, the uh, the mountain lion's great. It really is. It's very pork analogous. Mm. Uh, you know, people have a lot of weird feelings about predator hunting. I guess, uh, or you know, they have an association with them being cats or you know, like a house cat or whatever. But yeah, man, those those jokers taste taste really good. Only reason why people got the got have those and those those trepidations about eating that is because we ain't hungry huh yeah we, yeah. we don't starve you sure go, go to places like africa where i go for work mm -hmm. and you and 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 you get meat that's a, you eat meat once a month or once every six months you get a good meat there's no such thing as a good steak you know as root vegetables uh, or you know you know here in america or north america you know we we got so much at our disposal that we look at stuff like when you mentioned today raccoon mm-hmm and I looked at the people's faces that you were talking to, and they were like, I've never eaten raccoon myself because you know why? It's not that I, had, I didn't want to eat it. It's the point I didn't know where those glands were that you taught me today. Sure, yeah. You know, I'm like, I know they say that if you don't get those glands out of that animal. Oh, it's funky, buddy. It, it, you're going to eat something funky. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I, I, you know, I can't eat. You know, I don't because I didn't know where they were. Yeah. But trust me, next next season, I'm going to be like, Jonathan, here, here it is. Here's the video, brother. Is this a gland? Is yeah, this yeah. <laughs> you know, just so I could turn around and put them in my stew pot. It's And it's worth it, you know. And I, I mean, I like smoking them first and then braising them down. Nice. I mean, they're really good. Like, look, look man, I'm not going to tell you that a raccoon tastes as good as a ribeye steak because it doesn't. But it tastes plenty good, you know. Uh, I mean, there's a variance in, in how, things, how things taste. But, no, it's uh, – it tastes plenty good, and it's it's uh, man. I I I feel weird. I I feel weird about killing stuff and not using everything that I can off of it. I'm I mean I'm not going to pretend that I'm like sharpening femur bones and using them for needles. I mean I'm not doing that, but I I am making stock out of them. You know I am picking the meat off of them. I am. Uh, usually taking uh, the heart and the liver and the gizzard or whatever out of it. Uh, and then also, I mean, like today I showed you on those ducks, you know, like I'm taking the feet off of them. Yep. We, we were talking about using the neck skin for a sausage casing. Uh, I, I feel like I can, I, I feel like I can look anybody in the eye and let them know that I'm doing something that's uh, ethical and, you know, maybe even uh maybe even approaching nobility you know what i mean mm -hmm. especially when i'm dealing with a bunch of people who are getting their meat 
from a Walmart or a Costco with animals that live in horrific circumstances, and then they're high grading their meat. You know, they only want to eat a chicken breast or something like that. Uh, and then all that other stuff gets ground up for old Roy dog food, right? Uh, I mean, it. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be emotionally wounded by somebody trying to tell me that I'm. I'm doing something wrong. Now, if I was, if I was shooting animals and just chopping their heads off and leaving them to rot, then I'm mm-hmm. a scumbag. You know yes, what I mean? Absolutely. But no, it's. Uh, I think you're right. It's. It is about. Yeah, folks aren't. Folks aren't hungry enough. But you uh, know what, though, Jonathan, they're getting back to that. They get, you know, they're getting back to the totally, basics, brother. Because totally. now, if you look, we got avian flu. They just mm-hmm. killed thirty-seven million chickens across the United States. But it's probably way higher than that now. Yeah, they when just. I, that, I just heard about a big turkey farm, like forty thousand at one place. When, when I when I left Canada. Uh, well, probably two weeks ago, I lost, saw something in the news, and they said they killed 37 million chickens across the United States. As soon as they did that, a week, two weeks before that, a friend of mine who's in the chicken industry said, Anthony, you better buy all your chicken you want now because chicken price is going to go through the roof because avian flu is coming in. Uh, they, even if your farm doesn't have it, let's say your farm next door has avian flu. Mm-hmm. They're going to come and wipe out your whole breeding houses, your whole growing houses. Even though you're a thousand yards away, you're in the you're in the area. So they say, okay, we found avian flu on this farm. Anthony, Jonathan, you're over there. Anthony, you're here. Both of you have chicken growing houses. We're going to wipe out all your chickens. Now, those, each one of those chicken growing houses has over 200,000 chickens growing in it. So they got 37 million chickens. Now, this is probably three weeks to a month ago. They talk about antibiotics in our beef, uh, steroids being used. All People are becoming more conscious in what they're doing, so they're getting back to, and if you notice it, in the city. I mean, you don't probably live in the city, but I notice it. No, I mean, I, yeah, I live in the city for Arkansas, yeah, but, for but, sure. But, bro, I live in right outside of Seattle, yeah. and I, go to, I drive down my street. All of a sudden, I see chickens. They, we're not allowed any roosters. I see four hens on the lady's front lawn eating. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, I'm in Auburn. Oh, I can have up to five chickens to get fresh eggs for my 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 for my children to eat in the morning. I don't they don't have any antibiotics, any of this and that. And when the hens get old, I you know, unfortunately I make soup and stews and they, now these are your tree huggers. Yeah. They're getting back to because they realize the garbage that's, that that our government has allowed us, and then it's not political, but allowed us to put in our food source. And we wonder why, our ch- if you notice, our children today grow bigger. They develop faster. Mm-hmm. So you tell me if you feed a, 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 a cow, a chicken steroids to be fully grown at six weeks, that doesn't transfer to your food source? Yeah, I mean, you know, and what it also does too is it, it's a real disconnect from these natural processes. So, you know, I've got little kids and we keep some yard birds mm-hmm. there in Little Rock. And as much for them to understand the cycles of life and death, I mean, because like everything's trying to kill your chickens, right? Like <laughs> raccoon ate it. One of them gets out. Someone's dog, it gets over the fence. Someone's dog gets it. Uh, you know, we, we're hatching them out. Sometimes they hatch out and they got a wonky leg and you have to put it down or whatever. But, you know, that's where they get their eggs from. Uh, they they have that relationship with yep. it. Same way that they have the relationship with 
uh, you know, ever since they were little tiny babies, everything I've I've brought home, every animal I've brought home, I've like let them put their hands on it, That's uh, awesome. get familiar with it. Like when they were real little, they were all about poking dead fish in the eyeball for some reason. But I didn't <laughs> want them to be scared of it. That's right? right. I wanted them to understand where their food was coming from. I wanted them to understand what I was doing as a means of providing sustenance for us and then you know like educating people and like helping people to take that kind of stuff into their family uh yeah no i i yeah it all makes so much sense it's all super resonant uh man i do wonder and i don't want to focus too much on this but it's come up a couple times in this right so like you're talking about you're living up there in washington right you're uh you're living you're saying that you consider your home to be in ontario you're talking about kind of getting like a sideways glance sometimes when you're out there hunting you know and particularly like i thought it was i thought it was interesting when you're talking about you said you played sports but you weren't like just this over accomplished uh athlete which is uh, i think people link black masculinity to towards like uh physical sports performance a lot in this country uh, and that's, you know, that's a direct result of, you know, uh, enslavement and then kind of some of the areas where we've been, we've been allowed to find some success, right? Entertainment, sport, sex appeal, scare appeal, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff, man. And I mean, you're over six foot, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're a good size dude. Uh, do, do you find, do you find like that you're experiencing is it like open hostility? Is it just kind of like trepidation? Is it like novelty factor? Cause I've, I've experienced all of those things. Uh, or, I mean, or do you think that you're largely having very positive, uh, uh interactions with people when it comes to hunting and fishing and like wild places and stuff? You know, um, at the end of my talk yesterday, uh, I heard, man, I heard a ton of good stuff so some guy said man that like you brought tears to his eyes right and this is why i brought tears to the eyes i came back to them and i said because at the end of my thing and i said the only one holding you back from your dreams and passions is you and i didn't say that for the people in the room i said that for when i talked to other people that look like me mm-hmm. because i was that guy and I still, and I told him, and I said, even today, I find myself going, you know, when I'm getting ready to pack up and go somewhere hunting, okay, do, okay, is it, my first words out of my wife's mouth, is it going to be safe? Sure. Where are you going? Yeah. I want to know exactly where you're going. Oh, uh, you know, and I, and I'll go, I've turned my car around. If I'm going somewhere, f- Eastern Washington or whatever, up into the hills somewhere, and 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 I and, and and I know it's a lot of stuff about guns and stuff like that right now, but uh, I've turned my car around after driving out. Oh my God, I, f- I forgot my sidearm. Mm-hmm. And I've turned my car around and driven back home to pick up. And what I talked about yesterday, and I said, you know, uh, sometimes basically people like me, you know, I worry about where I go sometimes. I said, but you know what, my passion and love for the outdoors makes me overcome my fears of where I go. And I looked across the cat, and I don't know why I said it, but I said it. And uh, I looked and I had people crying in the audience. I had a couple of gentlemen come up to me and one gave me a hug and he said, I'm so sorry. And I, I didn't know 
the words I said were so profound, but it's just my daily life, what I have to deal with. Yeah, and that's like the thing, like you and me can like just immediately meet and we have, there are, there are commonalities in that shared experience. I know exactly what you're talking about, dog. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a reality, right? It, But at the same time as well, like I'm real big on, uh, I'm real big on, like, look, I'm about, I'm trying to use common sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to go in the middle of a Klan rally and start asserting my blackness, right? You know, Absolutely. I, I'm going to take my ass someplace else. But also... I'm not I'm not going to let other people's smallness keep me from living as full a life as I possibly can. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh and that's and and that means that sometimes I have to put myself in uncomfortable situations and sometimes that ends up being uncomfortable or tense or occasionally, you know, uh, feeling dangerous. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you like you really meet some rad people in places you wouldn't expect to. Absolutely. That has happened to me numerous times. Um, my goal is this. You know, first of all, don't judge me for the rapper that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Don't judge me for that. Judge me for the man that I am. I expect you to respect me as the man that I am and I respect you as the man or woman that you are until you give me a reason not to then you'll see a side of me that you know people don't really associate with Anthony Williams my wife has seen that side of me sure yeah. and uh, but judge my thing is buttholes come in all colors yeah totally there's some people that look just like me that I, I will never associate with. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, yo, you know what? My soul doesn't, as my wife would say, you know, my soul didn't take him. Yeah, did, what do they say? Uh, all skin folk ain't kin folk. Ain't kin folk. So like, okay, good example. You and I met and we came up. Now, I remember we were talking on the on the video conference. But when I saw you, it was like, I'm so glad the brother's here. You know, it was like, wow. And then when I saw you do your demo, I was you know, look, I get goosebumps talking about it. I was like, this brother's amazing. This, you know, he knows his craft. Oh, shit. Thanks, man. You know, he 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 knows his craft. I mean, from the harvest to the table to feeding his family, he knows the craft. This is somebody that I want to hitch my wagon to. Well, you know what, oh, man, that's real <laughs> important to me, man. And I talk about that. Is you know, like, so when we were on that call a couple years ago, right, there was all this stuff. I mean, it was right after, like, George Floyd had been Mm -hmm. murdered, and it was just, like, just real talk. Like, every company in America was, like, trying to collect brown people, right? (laughs) They were just trying to get these brown faces on stuff, right? And that's what's happening a lot in the hunting community. And what I talk I was just at that BHA rendezvous, and I talked about this, is there's an inclination to do this kind of like paternalistic thing, right? Which I think folks are not realizing is continuing a narrative and a power structure that is damaging, right? Which is, it's where, uh, we're basically just talking about like white folks allowing folks in, or let me welcome you into this thing or this kind of well-meaning, but very patronizing or patriarchal thing. And I think it's really important to have people, to have women, to have black brown people lgbtq folks whatever that aren't just 
being allowed in, but like are proficient and authoritative in their own right. Like that's what representation actually is. Representation is not just like, it's not just seeing someone who looks like you. It's seeing someone who you have like an immediate, some sort of immediate connection to, whether that be physical or cultural or whatever, that, uh, that you know there you can aspire to or you could like learn to mm-hmm. it's not a person who is beholding to other folks it's a person who is a, an authority in their own right and that's really important to me that you know if i come and do something like this that i'm not i'm not presenting myself as like a neophyte like i'm saying i'm a you know i've worked hard on on this stuff i've that's earned right. my way up that's right and and the skill set that i have is is you know astute and 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 I'm at a point that I can present that to anybody and and be authoritative with it. So that's yeah, that's real important to me. I mean, it's like the same thing with you. You know what I mean? It's not like you're not just being some Johnny come lately. You're talking about uh, a lifetime of aspiring and wanting to be connected to these wild places. And I mean, we haven't even touched on it because we've been talking about dogs so much, man. But I'd really love to broach the subject of this falconry, man, because that is, uh, I mean, that's something I have very little uh, understanding of or I have no personal association with it. And I'd really love to hear about how you got into that and just, I mean, what that's like and what it's about. Sure, man. Um, before we get into that, though, I want to I touch on something real quick that you kind of mentioned is. Please. When I come to events like this, I don't want to be, you know, oh, there's, there's Anthony, the black guy. Yeah, you know my my objective here is my my objective here is not to talk about my blackness or anything else like that. My objective here is to say I do the same thing, damn thing that you do, mm-hmm. each and every day. Yeah, I hone my craft like you said to get where I'm at. I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. And there's no, I try to make sure my family eats, just like you do. I try to make sure my dogs are at the best possible peak of performance, just like you do. There's no difference. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to be seen as anything different. You know, I don't want to be treated special. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be treated as the absolute professional that I am, that I've built, like, just like you, you've honed your craft for all those years. Now, let's talk about falconry. Yeah. Falconry came to me uh, in a weird way, because in New York, we all, you know, a lot of us had pigeons on roofs, as you know, uh, uh, Did you grow up doing that, having yeah, pigeons? Okay. I, I didn't have a lot of pigeons, but my parents, you know, hey, it kept the kid out of trouble. It kept me from slinging dope or doing something that the other kids in the neighborhood were doing. Mm-hmm. So I had a, you know, a small loft and everything else like that, and I would fly my birds and stuff like that. And uh, even back then in the, in the 70s, early 80s, we had, uh, we had peregrine falcons, man, that was coming in. Uh, snatching your pigeons. We had Cooper's hawks that were coming into the city, but people don't know that. They still do it today, but people don't see those birds because they don't look up. But when you have pigeons, just like chickens, they're on the bottom rung. Everything in their mother wants to eat them, Mm -hmm. including people. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I had these birds coming in, and I said, you know what, I'm going to kill, I'm going to catch this bird, and I'm going to kill it. 
because all my pigeon guys, the Italian guys, and you know, I got some birds back way back when. And Michael Mike Tyson would come to the to the hood, and you know, and stuff like that. And yeah, Tyson's like a pigeon guy. He's right? a pigeon guy, and he gave me a couple birds and stuff like that. And I, I, you know, I didn't worship Mike for him being the boxer that he was. I liked him, but I love Mike because of the his 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 love affair with the with the pigeons. And dogs. He's also a dog man, but you know, uh, not a houndman or nothing like that. But just his care of animals, and uh, that's why I love Mike Tyson. But um, yeah, man, Tyson had them tigers too. It's he, he, he had. He's a love. He's got a love affair of animals. Sometimes it's misguided because the average person doesn't walk around with a tiger in their backyard. Yeah, yeah. But you know, if you ever see Mike around his pigeons, it's like looking at it. You know, I watched. Pictures with him and Customato, video of custom him and the Customato. I've seen him in the hood with his birds. You know, uh, it's like watching a ballerina hold a, an animal. Here's this man that can destroy people, but he, when he's around his rollers and his tipplers, it's like he's holding, he's cradling a newborn baby. Hmm. You know, and you see a side of him where that 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 facade of vengeance and you know, striking the fear in the hearts of men, that's gone. He's a pigeon man. He loves his pigeons. Um, that's the way it was when we when we grew up. And we had these birds, these raptors that would come through and take our birds. So I was a big kid that went to the New York City Library. That's how I found out about the drathars and the teckles and everything else like that. And that was my outlet. So I went there and I said, you know, falcons, how do I, you know, catch falcons i found a book on falcon it's called the art of falconry i own about four or five copies of that book today and you know i read up on some art of falconry what you know and i read how these birds can actually harvest game and the back in the day a lot of the butchers you know that had drathars or had this and that they also had goshawks because they would go out and catch tons of ducks and geese and herons you know back in the days when the women used to wear the heron feathers okay. in their hats okay. that they caught those birds you know yeah they shot a lot of them but they caught most of those birds via falconry where the hawk goes in slams into a heron and they pluck the feathers out let the heron go and then the heron's feathers grow back. Really? Yeah. And they, the women, they turn around and sell these beautiful heron feathers, and the women put them in their hats. Man, it's, did you ever read that book, uh, My Side of the, the Mountain? My Side of the Mountain. Dude, Every, yeah, yeah. Everybody, okay. Everybody's read that book that's a falconer. Um, and, you know, eventually, I, you know, after I re read about the animals, I went from wanting to, to kill them and harm them to, like, man, you know— this is a magnificent beast because I learned about the human human raptor connection, how they provide meat for the table, just like your dogs. You know, just like, you know, your, you know, people with ferrets or whatever. These things go out and they actually can provide ducks. They can provide rabbits. They can provide geese. You know, they can provide pheasants. They can provide... You know, upland birds, sharp tails. I go, I go out to Montana with my friend uh, Dan Pike, and we we uh, he's a big falcon breeder. And I watch his falcons come out of the out of the sky and slap a a sharp tail grouse into the ground. That's just amazing. Or are they mostly? They're as I understand it. This very limited understanding, but 
the speed with which they're hitting these ant. I mean, they're they're killing them by with impact, right? With the fal- with falcons. Now remember, there's 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 two types of birds. There's there's the falcon falcons that they have. Those are your long wing pointed birds. And then there's the buteos, which is your short wing hawks and your sipiters. Then there's the parabuteo, which is the most common falconry bird today, which is the Harris hawk. It still has a long tail, short wings, but it's not an occipiter. But so when you got, you know, actually, I'm, I, they call me a falconer, but I'm not really a falconer. I'm what they call an ostringer because I fly short wing hawks on ground quarry and feathers. A falconer flies pointed wing falcons, peregrine falcons, jeer falcons. Uh, hybrid falcons between a peregrine and a jeer, uh, prairie falcons, merlin falcons, carrot, kestrel falcons. Those people are falconers. They, you know, the people who hone their craft on flying falcons. That birds that hunt from a stoop, they'll go up six, eight hundred, a thousand feet. Your dog's on point. You flush whatever's in front of the dog. The falcon comes out of the sky. It drops out of the sky. Out of the sky, connects the game. That's called stooping knocks its game in the in the ground or it hits it so hard it breaks its back or punches it in the head or sometimes hits it in the rump and it's a tail chase for the next seven miles my hunting is a little bit different i i hunt with european goshawks and harris hawks so with my european goshawks my hunt looks is very simple my hunt is I go out to a pond, I peep over the pond, it's okay. I tell my wives there's two or three ducks in that pond. Make sure it's a little small pond that when I flush them, me and my dogs, they leave the pond. I don't want them bailing back down in the water. So we go back and I get my bird out and I beep it up. And then my wife and the dogs rush the pond. And they go, whoa! And when they do that, the ducks immediately go, whoa, what's this? And they, they don't see the hawk that's sitting on my fist. I open my hand and my goshawk flies him down and snatches one of them out of the sky and brings him to the ground. Um, with my Harris hawks, my dogs work the, work the bush, the cattails or the blackberry bushes in Washington till they flush a rabbit. Harris hawk comes off the telephone pole, boom, and catches the rabbit. So, you know, that's the difference between a falcon flight and they call what we do is called ground quarry. But with the occipiter, I can go out and catch pheasants. I can catch ducks. I can catch quail. I can catch geese. They may get their butt whipped when they grab a goose. But if I'm there quick enough, I can help. I can dispatch a goose for them. Um, I've been a falconer for 35 years, you know, um, I, I haven't done it much lately because I'm, I've, you know, I'm going kind of going back to my first love of training these dogs. Um, but when I turn around and look, like when I was building the presentation for for this for this this event, I was loading up a couple of video clips of me doing falconry and my birds catching ducks, and I was like. Oh man, I got to I you know, I had that bug in yeah, your body. Yeah, the fire back up. <laughs> you sure. know, I said I got to make this happen again next year. So we'll be hawking. I'm going to pull my birds out of the chamber, uh out of their housing and we're going to get stoked up next year and catch a our goal is to catch 60 ducks next year. Oh wow. I mean, that'd be a pretty good duck season for anybody. Yeah. Just hunt with a shotgun. But see but see one of the things that I can hunt ducks where a lot of people can't. Like I can hunt in urban environments. 
You know, there's a pond in the earth. You know, I'm not talking about the the ducks that people feed with bread. Mm-hmm. In Washington, they have uh, it rains so much in Western Washington that inside of every industrial park is these drainage ditches where all the water can pool. Mm-hmm. So what happens there is when the ducks start to migrate down, they stop in these drainage ditches. You know, for a few days to rest over. There's always a different group of ducks. Okay. Uh, mostly dabbler ducks. You know, your 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 widgeon, your uh, your mallards. Uh, you know, every now and then you you may you may find the merganser in there, but you find you find quite a few different species of ducks right there in Washington that go right into the and they rest up in these little ponds. And you're talking late winter, getting in you know November, December, and the place is loaded with them. And these are wild ducks. These are mm-hmm. not bread-fed ducks. These are nowhere near a park. They normally just come in for two, three days, rest, and continue their migration south. So then that's when I come in, in these areas where there's no discharge of firearms. It doesn't say there's no hunting. It said there's no discharge of firearms. And I can go in there with my hawks and snatch a duck, snatch, snatch a duck off one of those draining ditches, you know, a few times a week. And uh, be able to have, well, now it's going to be delicious duck. Now I watched your your demonstration. It's going to be even better duck eating. So that's why I just upped my, my goal from 40 to 60 because my wife's like, dude, after she ate your your, your duck your duck today, she's like, dude, you better. Yeah, I mean, that stuff's good, right? I mean, it's real good. She's like, you be, you, you're going to have to tighten these up a little bit. We got to get the birds going. I said, okay, I got it. Man, that's wild. And you, doing it in conjunction with those species too, like you're using a dog and you're using a bird, that's a uh, that's wild, man. That's super multifaceted. But it's not new though. Don't think it's new. It's been done. Falconry is the old is actually the oldest form, one of the oldest forms of hunting. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. What uh, well, I mean, where do you? So I guess people are breeding them now. Oh yeah, there's always been people breeding falcons, um, breeding goshawks, breeding Harris hawks. Um, it's not as popular. It's, it's starting to wane in population because at one point, they actually call them either some people call them feathered cocaine, other people call them feathered gold, because at the, at one time the um, oh hold on a second, at one time the sheiks in Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia that they still do. Mm-hmm. Let, 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 you know, Jonathan, they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. For jeer falcons. Really? I mean, back then, a white jeer falcon would cost you 200 grand. And those sheiks had all that oil money. And, oh, yeah, fine. Here, American, there's so many f- breeders here in the U.S. that became multi, multi millionaires just from breeding falcons. Really? Just from breeding falcons. And, and guys, as you listen to this podcast, you're probably going to be sitting there saying, oh, this guy's full of junk. Look it up. Look up Operation Falcon. They had people coming over from Europe, going to Alaska, raiding jeer falcon nests, having custom-made vests that they could put the eggs in and smuggle them back to to Europe. That's how much money. They called them feathered cocaine or feathered gold because it made people multi, multi, multi-millionaires off of falcons, breeding jeer falcons, peregrine falcons, Hybrid falcons. Now these falcons, because they bred them so much and you know they're breeding them like rabbits, 
the sheiks and the people overseas in Europe who didn't have access to white, solid white gear falcons or solid black gear falcons or, or gray-faced gear falcons, they didn't have all of that. They didn't have access to birds like that. But now they do because they're breeding them themselves. So the market here is kind of drying up. It's lost some of that exclusivity. You know, so like the big thing now was uh, white goshawks from Russia. Okay. Siberia. Um, those birds were 15, 20 grand, 30 grand, 50 grand a piece. Um, I bought mine for $3,000. Yeah. I mean, still not cheap, but like substantially not, less. This, but see, this was seven years ago. Now these white, those white goshawks, a thousand bucks. Really? You know, like the cost of a good, a good decent shotgun. Yeah, yeah. It's like buying a a, a Benelli or something. Uh, buying yeah. a Benelli is you know a thousand bucks because the you know the novelty's worn off. Everybody's breeding them now. How long does one of those birds live? Oh, uh, you know, uh, well over twenty years. Man, so that yeah, well, that's an investment. You know, you say you say well over twenty years, but you know, remember once you once that bird leaves your fist. A lot of stuff could happen. Sure. They could fly into fences. They could get electrocuted. They land on top of a hot wire. I've seen them run, fly into glass buildings. Mm. I've had goshawks slam a glass building and she hit the ground stone dead. You know, because she, she's following the duck and all she's following is the duck and her and the duck collide into the window. Wow. Because remember, the duck is looking at the glass. He sees, sun, he sees mm-hmm. blue sky. It's not blue sky. That's that's the glass mirror. Boom! They hit it. Um, my friend had his had a uh, had his uh, goshawk, a coyote run up to his goshawk, killed killed the coyote, got I me mean, killed the goshawk, and took the the rabbit, the jackrabbit that he had. Really? I had other friends who been were flying their falcons every year. This happens. They fly their falcons out west and. All of a sudden, they go there. You know, they track them with telemetry because it's a tail chase, and they go up, and all of a sudden, they see a, a golden eagle get up off the ground, and they go there, and they just find two legs. Yeah, a bigger bird came in and got that. Absolutely, yeah. great horned owls take a lot of the falconry birds. So things happen. So you can, some birds you, you you pray to have a long, and then you got disease on top of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you pray to have a long, just like with our dogs, you pray to have a long time, but things do happen. Sure. Well, shit, man. This has been a fascinating conversation, man. Uh, we're probably at the length where we should uh, we should wrap it up, man. But, uh, dude, if I mean, do you want folks to reach out to you? And if so, how would they how would they do that? Do you have a website or Instagram or what? Uh, you know what? I, I I got an Instagram. It's Anthony. I don't even know the name of it. Best way to find me, man, is on is on Facebook. I got to be honest. Um, I never. Th- thought the things I do were interesting enough that people wanted to hear about. So I never went, you know, uh, did stuff like this. But as of late, I've been getting a ton of of requests to come do talks or or I did a few podcasts on, uh, on Hunting Dog Confidential. I did one. I did another two-part series on, on racing pigeons and keeping pigeons for bird dog training on Gun Dog It Yourself. I've done a Zoom now I've done this talk. I've been asked to do a few more talks. So I'm going to start developing, you know, a little bit like an Instagram account or mm-hmm. whatever. I've always had a, a, a YouTube page called Chasing Goss. Uh, I only have like two videos posted on it. Everybody's like, dude, we need to have more of your videos. But I never found it 
you know, what I do is is something that people <laughs> want to would want to listen to. But apparently, I was I was wrong. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna be building out all those things. Um, and you know, anybody can reach out and touch me. If I'm on Facebook, dude, and you want to reach out to me and talk to me about something, uh, I'm easily accessible. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm easy to talk to. I'm no special. I don't walk around with a chip on my shoulder or anything else like that. Just like when I met you today for the first time, I said, you know, he's a real brother. He's not. I've met some people like us that, you know, look at me and I'm like, Anthony, are you shooting a Benelli ethos? I'm like, nah, dude, I'm shooting a Remington 1187 that's 20 years old. Dude, I'm still rocking that 870, <laughs> man. You know, and you get some brothers, you know, I've been out there, you know, go to the gun range, and what are you shooting? I'm shooting a Kriegoff. What are you shooting? I'm shooting a Remington 1100, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm not that guy. I'm the brother that you could come, you could talk to me, you know, I love dealing with real people. Real, everyday people that's just in the day-to-day grind, trying to get their way through something, trying to train their dog or or trying to get into the get into hunting like real, you know, uh I, I you know, I find a lot of uh, you know, single moms and single dads who, hey, my kid wants to get into hunting, Anthony. I don't know a darn thing about hunting. Mm-hmm. And I said, Okay, your kid's a mini me. Let me show you how what to do. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's real important, that mentorship, man. And uh so yeah, so the bottom line is I'm easy to get in touch with. Find me on Facebook. Um, I have an Instagram account. I go into it. I haven't posted anything on there. I will. But, uh, man, reach out to me. I'm not that hard to find. Cool. Yeah, make sure you're a real one, though, if you're going to reach out to Anthony. (laughs) He's not with that mess. Uh, Well, shoot, Anthony Williams, man, thank you so much. So glad to uh, finally meet you in person. Thanks for doing the podcast. It's been a blast. And, uh, folks, thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please do me a favor. Tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell an acquaintance, share on social media. And if you have not done so yet, please go to whatever podcast platform that you uh, consume this content on and leave a five-star review if you have a few moments a written review helps tremendously Uh, that helps get us up in the algorithms it also is like a legitimizing force for folks that may come across the podcast and not know very much about it if it's got a bunch of positive reviews and people have taken the time to you know write a few sentences about why it's meaningful or impactful for them that goes a very very long way if you want to keep up with me kind of the same deal as always easiest and quickest way is going to be on instagram that handles just black duck revival or you can always follow uh, what i'm up to over on the website and that's blackduckrevival.com i'm excited here uh in the next few weeks three four weeks uh, i hope to be starting to release some new regular content that will uh inform and titillate uh, the masses so look out for that Uh, Keep up with me on social media. Tell somebody about the podcast. We'll see you next time.